I would take just a moment to remind us of our time in the pastoral epistles, and especially in the letter to Timothy here in 1 Timothy, of the purpose statement of Paul's writing to Timothy, who he had left in Ephesus and given him specific charges. But he tells us in the third chapter, verse 15, that he's writing to Timothy that if he delays in his coming, he's able to instruct the church to teach the church how they ought to behave in God's household. For he says, God's household, the people of God, are the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. He's saying, Timothy, I'm writing all these things out to you so that you can teach them. You can command them. This is how you ought to behave in God's household. So the things we've looked at, this is part 18 of our message, the things we have left to look at in this chapter are all instructive for us. Even though this letter is written to the first century church at Ephesus, to Timothy, a, an apostolic delegate, and in all essence an elder of the church, and how he was to appoint leaders in the church, elders and deacons, all of these things are instructive for us. All of these things are needful for us. Why? Because we're part of God's household today. 2,000 plus years removed from the writing of this letter, all of this is relevant for us and especially the instructions we're going to receive today uh, in this passage of chapter 6 there in First Timothy. This passage is going to teach us really not just principles for how we ought to behave in the church, but all of life principles. Because it speaks about what true contentment is. What it means to find true contentment, to have true contentment in contrast to what we're going to see regarding false teachers that had infiltrated the church of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but at various times in my walk with the Lord, I have struggled with finding true contentment. I've battled seasons of my life where I've walked in discontentment. Now, usually those have been times when Things have been tough when I've had more month left at the end of my paycheck, which had been thoroughly exhausted. Usually it's in a times when like everything hits you all at once. You ever experienced that? The car breaks down, the roof is leaking, the AC goes out, right? You have relational problems, something's going on in your life. Maybe you got laid off from your job and it's like it all hits you at one time. And, and, and you know, in the natural we go, yeah, that's, it's kind of hard to find contentment in those moments but there's also been times in my life when everything's been going okay when I really I've not lacked for anything and I find myself not walking in contentment but still in unsatisfaction and discontentment I think we all can say we've experienced that maybe today you're sitting here and you're going yeah that's kind of me right now I'm not very content in the circumstances and situations in my life So let's turn to God's word and see what encouragement this has for us today. We're going to start in the last portion of verse 2. We're going to read all the way through verse 10. Hear the words of the living God. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness... He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. 
imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. These are the words of the Lord. Now you notice that statement, that phrase that we've seen a few times from Paul in his letter to Timothy. Where he commands them, teach and urge these things. Teach these things to the people. And that phrase, though it's, it's in, in, in some of your translations, you see it there connected to verse 3. It's connected to everything that came before it. This is not a disconnected passage from what we looked at in regards to the instructions of honoring the widows and honoring the elders and how slaves are to honor their masters and respect them and all these things. These are further instructions for the people of God. And even though right now he is going to level some serious charges against those false teachers in the church, those that had crept in and were teaching a different doctrine. This is the second chunk here in Timothy where he is addressing specifically these individuals. We saw that in chapter 1. And there's three particular charges that Paul brings about here against these false teachers. Now this is authoritative teaching and this is why he says teach and urge these things. Timothy, I've left you there for this very reason. Look at the first charge against these false teachers. And that first charge is that they are teaching a different doctrine. These have come into the church. These, some of these may have been leaders in the church. We're, we're not sure. Many scholars think these might have been elders in the church that all of a sudden now were, were heading off in a different direction. They were deviating from the truth. All right? They're teaching a different doctrine. That word, just two words, different doctrine, are one word in the Greek. And it's, it's, it's the word where we derive the term heterodoxy or heterodox teaching, right? That is opposed to orthodox teaching. Orthodox teaching is, ortho means straight. In other words, orthodox right teaching, the correct teaching or generally accepted teaching. Hetero would mean different teaching, different from orthodoxy. And that's the charge against these here. They are teaching something different from orthodox beliefs. Now what was those different doctrines? What was that heterodox teaching that these false teachers were being charged with teaching? Well he tells us right there. They're teaching things that do not agree. Listen to this. With the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And with the teaching that accords with godliness. Now this reminds us here that there is a sound doctrine already established in the church. They are the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, doctrine developed more fully over time, but make no mistake, here in the early church, I've said this already, there was already generally accepted teaching in the church. Everything Christ taught his disciples was accepted teaching, sound doctrine, the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Everything in your Bible that the apostles wrote under the authority and inspiration of the Holy Spirit 
is acceptable teaching, is orthodox teaching in the church. So there's that sound teaching, but for these people, what they were teaching was unsound, unhealthy teaching, contrary to these acceptable sound words of Christ and the apostles. Now, Paul refers to the orthodox teaching of the church in a number of ways. We've looked at them already. I'll I'll list off a few of them quickly. He calls it the faith, the good deposit, the sound doctrine, the gospel, the truth, the good doctrine, the teaching, the stewardship from God. All of those terms refer to this accepted teaching, this established teaching in the church, the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and apostolic teaching. And we know that even the apostolic teaching was considered the acceptable teaching and orthodox teaching in Peter's letter. For there he writes something about Paul's letters, right? We see that in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, where he acknowledges that what Paul has written the church is scripture. It's as if the Lord Jesus Christ was writing that himself to the church. 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Yes, lots of things, right? But he says, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. Look at this. As they do the other scriptures. What's he saying? That Paul's writings here are just as the other scriptures. And these ignorant and unstable individuals, they're twisting the teaching. They're twisting the sound doctrine. They are twisting the the acceptable teaching of the church. It's like they're all in the same band. Twisted scripture. Right? And, and they take the teachings and they distort them. They deviate them from them. They twist them around for their own means. And they begin to teach that and propagate that in the church and leading people astray. That's what they did then. That's what false teachers do now. And will do until Christ returns. Which always reminds us, right? This is a letter to the church. This is happening in the church. That means we always need to be on guard against what is false. We always need to have our ears in tune with God's word and in tune to hear something that may deviate from the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ in apostolic teaching. It goes on in pulpits all across the world. It's going on over the internet. It's going on even... I don't even know if there's even Christian television. I don't even have turned on Christian television in ages. I'm sure it's still out there. But even there, you have to be extremely careful. Now, Paul's analysis of a false teacher is that they are arrogant and they're ignorant. He says they're puffed up with conceit. And understand nothing. Now, if you recall back in chapter 1 and verse 7, he wrote this about those who were teaching a different doctrine. Same people he's referring to is here. That they were desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. That confident assertion is in their arrogance, in their conceit, that they have some newfangled revelation to teach, but the reality is they don't know what they're talking about. They truly don't understand anything. And the the thing that they do not understand is the truth. The thing they do not understand is the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's what was happening in Ephesus. Arrogance and ignorance of these teachers. They think they know something. They think they have some new ascetic ascetic practice that that believers can engage in to somehow level up their spiritual game. That there's some new vision, some new revelation, there's some new myth that they should be paying attention to and following that's going to give them some new insight and open them up to some new realms of spiritual dynamics and life and dimensions and all of this stuff. We hear that stuff today and we go, man, that's crazy. How could people believe that? But look, here in the first century, this is exactly what Paul is addressing here. Okay? Uh, But the truth is, these false teachers, they have zero spiritual understanding. Oh, they can talk a big game about, you know, this and that and this new revelation. But the truth is, they know nothing. In rejecting the sound words of Christ and embracing And teaching something that deviates from the truth, they have become puffed up windbags spewing soul-destroying heresy. We see that in some of the internet teachers out there today. And I follow some of them for kicks um, just because I like to see how wrong they are. You know, a lot of these guys out there are disconnected from the local church. They're, They're not under the authority of any elders in their church, but they set up their own platform. You know why they do that? Nobody else gives them a platform. So they think, well, I've got some teaching that needs to get out there. And I don't like what the other churches are teaching, so I'm going to build my own platform. And they start teaching their stuff. And most of these guys come across as arrogant. Have you ever listened to some of those? And you go, dude, man, you need to be knocked down a few pegs, man. Especially when you're teaching God's word, there needs to be a humility with, with the word of God. And they make confident assertions. But the reality is, it's just like he's saying here, they're ignorant. They know nothing, they understand nothing, but they pretend to understand everything. And they're leading people astray. There's many false teachers today. Now, if you know your Bible, you can spot them. You should be able to. Okay? This is our constant exhortation why you need to know the Word. The problem is there's widespread biblical illiteracy in the church at large. So they eat that garbage up. And they're sitting there going like, ah, I was just watching something this, this week. And I had seen this before, but it, it, was, a, it was some of these wacky teachings from Bethel Church. Uh, Jen Johnson, one of their pastors. And, and she was trying to be funny, but it shows the, the incredible disregard uh, for the word of God. Where she's talking about the scene in Revelation, right, with the angels worshiping around the throne of grace. And she's saying, I imagine these angels are probably up there texting one another and having farting contests. And everybody's laughing like, this is crazy. This is so funny. And I'm sitting here thinking, angels around the throne of grace. Before the holy God of glory in this universe. And that's what they're doing? What a fool. That's a stupid individual. That is heaping up condemnation upon themselves and their hearers. But that's the kind of stuff that's out there and people just lap it up. Why? Because they want something new. They want something other than what God has disclosed to them. They want some new revelation. Well, I don't, I don't really want to dig in the work. Shouldn't God just speak to me in dreams and visions? Like that should be enough. No, no, this is enough. This is complete. This is sufficient. But because people are ignorant of the word of God. They have no knowledge of God and no fear of the Lord. They, they come to that stuff and they go, wow. Yeah, that's true. Is it? 
We'll see. We'll see one day. You may recall that confronting the false teachers was the charge that Paul gave Timothy. In fact, it was the express reason he left him at Ephesus. First Timothy 1.3, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Anything that is heterodox, anything that is contrary to the sound words and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and does not accord with godly living or promote godly living needs to be addressed and confronted. It is one of the main responsibilities of, the, of, of an elder in the church to protect the flock of God, to guard the sound doctrine, to protect the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, to make sure that that is what is conveyed. By the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit, in faithful men throughout the ages, right, we have the sound doctrine preserved for us, which we try to labor to faithfully continue to proclaim in the church until he returns. But this, any teaching that downplays or minimizes Christ, anything that tries to soften the words and teachings of Christ, anything that adds or subtracts from what Christ has taught is heterodox and needs to be called out. And we should not be afraid to do that. I know some of you follow a lot of people on social media that are people you know personally. I say call them out when they get dumb with false teaching. Right? Because they're spreading that out there. And I say that just myself. I don't like to engage much because I just don't like that sideways energy. And, and, and I think it's just, I don't want to go back and forth with, with, with ignorant people who really do not want to hear truth. But sometimes we got to do that. And certainly if someone you know here is teaching something wacky, let them know. Let me know. All right? <laughs> Look at the second charge here. So that's the first charge. They're, they're teaching a different doctrine. The second charge brought against these false teachers is that they are divisive or divisive, however you want to say that, right? What they're doing, what they're teaching is corroding the unity of the church. It is dividing the church. Look what he writes. He says they ha- that this false teacher has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. These are people who crave controversy. They want to quibble about words and and doctrinal minutiae, secondary and tertiary uh, doctrines and making them primary things and love to argue with people about these things. Right? Or there are people that you, you might know some of these people, right? All they're about is any end time stuff. When the rapture is going to be, who the antichrist is going to be. You know, looking at their newspaper and the news. I don't think anybody reads the newspaper right now. The news, right? The internet news, right? Or Twitter news. And they're like, oh, that's the sign of, you know, here, of this in Daniel's prophecy. or in Revel-. And they're obsessed with that. And they love to argue about when these things are going to be. That's who Paul's talking about here. They crave controversy. What they're doing, though, is they're bringing division in the church. And if this kind of behavior goes unchecked, it breaks down the relational unity of a body of believers. Paul lists quickly five results. We don't don't really have to go through these in much detail. They're self-explanatory. Five results that this divisive conduct of false teachers produces. Envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved uh, in mind and deprived of the truth. Envy. 
They resent others' gifts or positions. That's why I'm saying some of these people may have been leaders in the church, and they were envious of those maybe who were elders of the church, but they're like, man, I've got, I've got another teaching that the believers should be listening to, right? And so they're propagating their teaching on the side there. They're bringing dissension, right? Strife, discord. They're speaking maliciously of others. They're slandering possibly the leaders, the elders of the church. Uh, they're stoking mistrust of leadership through their evil suspicions. Now, there's a lot of people who think that suspicion is a spiritual gift. It is not, okay? Especially evil suspicions, right? And, and look what they're doing, bringing constant friction, right, um, among the body of believers. Right? That's the fruit of their deeds. So Paul characterizes these false teachers and those who pay attention to them as being depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Everything about their life is twisted. Everything about their relationships is twisted. Everything they're teaching is twisted. They are rotten to the core. And here's the third charge. Right? So they're, they're teaching a different doctrine. Here they're bringing division in the church. The third charge he brings against them is that they love money. They are lovers of money. They are imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Financial or material gain. That's what they're after. That's what they're after with their twisted teaching and why they're trying to bring along followers after them. It is the ultimate degradation of the character of a false teacher. That what they do and what they teach is done in order to not promote godly living, godliness, and followership of Christ, but to fleece the flock for material gain. They're not interested in teaching that accords with godliness, but will use godliness in so much as it is financially profitable for them. Paul doesn't tell us exactly how they were doing that, but we can imagine, and I'll give some examples here in a moment in our present day and age and of some things in church history. But we know some things about the state of Ephesus at that time. When you go back to Acts chapter 19, right, that's Paul's second visit to Ephesus, we know that Ephesus was booming with business as it related to uh, any trade surrounding the temple of Artemis in Ephesus there, in the worship of Artemis. In Acts chapter 19, we're told that the silversmiths had a very profitable business making their silver, silver trinkets uh, for worship of Artemis. And through Paul's preaching, right, people were coming to faith and they saw their business decline, Okay. They had a little Bud Light controversy moment themselves. Business was tanking, right? And, and, and because the gospel was, was, was advancing, right? But there was big business surrounding the religious worship there in Ephesus. And the reality is that the commercialization of religion is big business. It was then. Sadly, it is now to this day. Look at the prosperity Gospel teachers. What do these false teachers do? They have built a false gospel that's built entirely around the false teaching that God only wants you healthy and wealthy. But here's the catch. In order for you to be healthy and wealthy, you've got to make sure you're paying your tithes and giving your offerings and sowing that seed faith gift, preferably of $1,000 or more, not to your favorite charity, or church, but to them. But to them. 
Now, you know, there's a, there's a ton of these guys out there, from Osteen to Copeland to DePlantis and many others, right? Give your offering to the man or woman of God, and you'll receive it back a hundredfold. I lived that world for many years of my life, okay? But these are not men and women of God. They're, char- they're charlatans. That's what they're doing. They are imagining godliness as a means of gain, right? What are they doing? While well, you're there faithfully hoping that God is going to bless you and you keep giving and giving, they're living extravagant lifestyles in their multi-million dollar homes, with their multi-million dollar beach homes that they get to vacation to, flying around in their private jets around the world, wearing expensive clothing, while the flock there remains impoverished. Hoping on this false promise to come true that God is going to make them wealthy, just like the supposed men and women of God that they are giving money to. What are they doing? Imagining godliness as a means gain. These false teachers, what do they do but if not provoke the flock of God to violate the 10th commandment? Thou shalt not covet. Because what do they do? You sit there watching them all prospering like crazy and you want that. Because it plays to those same lustful cravings and desires that each of us has to have more stuff. Better car, the newer car, the bigger house, the better clothing. And what do we do? We covet. Just like the false teachers. That's what's taking place today. We look at this vile time in church history. The Roman Catholic Church's disgraceful practice of the selling of indulgences during the Middle Ages. Horrific practice. And all that was about was, hey, we got to build these extravagant cathedrals and got to take care of the Pope and everybody, you know, down the chain of command. So what did they do? Offered these certificates of complete absolution of sin or avoidance of purgatory in exchange for coin, right? We see that on and on and on. And you have Paul here writing these things and and Paul knowing that the same charges level today, right? Isn't isn't that what the world says? Uh, Anyone, man, all these these priests, all these ministers, all these TV, they're just in it for the money. Have you ever heard that? Sadly, it's true, though. A lot of them are in it for the money. And Paul's always trying to differentiate himself from those he knew were taking advantage of the flock of God, who who were trying to profit from ministry. If you get into ministry for money, you're in it for the wrong reasons altogether. Not only is it hard to make money by faithfully preaching the gospel, right, you would have to resort to the tactics that we just talked about of the false teachers in order to truly profit in the way you want to profit, right? Look what he writes in 1 Thessalonians 2.5, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, look, nor with a pretext for greed. He didn't come with a message under the veil of, we really need to get an offering from these folks. In Acts chapter 20, when he calls the elders of Ephesus you know, to him, knowing that he was going off to Jerusalem where he would be imprisoned and he didn't know his fate. He reminded them, man, when I was with you, what did you do? What did you see me do? I labored with my own hands to provide for my own needs and those that were with me. Why? 
so that you wouldn't look at me as someone who was just trying to take advantage of you, like all the others have been doing. These false teachers were greedy, and they were using the church as a cover for their greed and gain. So those are the charges he brings against the false teachers, and now he's going to address believers in the church specifically. Maybe some of those who were listening to the false teachers, but certainly those who were probably, I'm going to put them in the poor category, okay? Or not people of great means, and he's going to talk to them here for a few moments. But before we get there, I think when you look at these three charges, you can actually see them as three tests for how to evaluate any and all teaching. When you look at these charges, the first thing you should always ask about when you hear a teaching out there and you're like, oh, that's a little strange. That's a little different. You need to ask yourself, is this teaching that you're listening to compatible with Christ's teaching and apostolic teaching? Does it agree with the sound doctrine as laid out in Scripture? You should always ask that question when you're listening to something. You should never be a passive listener when someone's telling you they're saying something to you from God. You shouldn't be it here and you shouldn't be it at home when you're listening to a podcast or watching the YouTube guy. Is that teaching compatible with the sound words and teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ? And the second is, does that teaching unite or divide the church? Now you might ask, does all false teaching divide the church? Well, think about it. Let's talk about it here in our context. Okay? We strive and labor here to be faithful to God's word in the preaching and teaching of God's word. If someone begins to teach something that does not agree with those, that sound doctrine that we're teaching here, what do you think is going to happen? Well, number one, I would hope that our mature Christians here who are solid in the words will begin to confront that and deal with that and address that. But that individual might bring along some weaker individuals who are not solid in God's word and, 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 and don't understand sound doctrine very well. Maybe they're newer converts. And you can begin to see how all of a sudden there can start a division in the church and there would be friction among the believers in a church. Sound doctrine, right, divides the true from the false. Those who come with a different doctrine that contradict that, right, are going to create friction in a community of faith, in the relationships in the church. We've had, we've had people do that here. They don't agree with some reformed soteriology, and what they start doing, they start going, going out there talking to other people, right, to, to try to get someone along with them on their side, and next thing you know, two or three families are up in arms about something, and they got to go, right? Because I'm not going to go. And our solid people are not going to go in so much as we're striving to be faithful to what God's word teaches. That's just one example, but there are many. Okay, Again, people who get hung up on a particular pet doctrine like eschatology and, or Hebrew numerology. Like, and we got to find what these, the numerical equivalent of this mean. No, you don't. <laughs> the plain reading is enough. Okay, we don't need that. Okay, kind of like back in the day, you know, all rock music was of the devil. So listen to it backward and it tells you, you know, I'm like, just listen to it forward, man. It's even worse, you know. And so they're like, you got to dig into all. No, you don't. No, you don't. No, you don't. But that could bring division in a church. 
So evaluate off teaching in that. Does it divide or does it bring unity? And thirdly, does it promote godliness with contentment or covetousness? If what you're hearing is, is, is stirring up things in you to covet material things and possessions, um, it's, not sound, it's not sound doctrine. But if it promotes godly living, if it promotes obedience to the teachings of Christ, right, and, and a desire to, to follow that, and contentment, right, godliness with contentment, then that is sound teaching. So let's talk about this true contentment and finding true contentment. Because Paul's response following this indictment of the false teachers and their greediness to profit from the religious enterprise is going to give us some uh, important principles which apply to all Christians in every culture. Verse 6, but, he says, but, right? We see that but, and we know this is connected to what he just said. So this is not a new train of thought. These guys are greedy for gain. These guys are using godliness as a cover to profit off of you. But, he says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Now notice this. Paul does not contradict the notion that godliness is a means of gain, does he? He doesn't do that. In fact, he confirms that godliness is a means of gain. In fact, he says godliness is a means of great gain, providing that you add contentment with it. So he's not saying, God, no, there's no gain in godliness. No, there's great gain in godliness. There's great gain in godly living, right? Providing you add contentment with it. And providing you understand what that gain actually is. Is that gain financial and material? Is it? That's not a trick question. Don't be scared to answer. No. It's a spiritual gain that's in view here. In fact, he's already told us in this letter that godliness has great Value back in First Timothy chapter four, last part of seven and verse eight, where he instructs Timothy, rather train yourself for godliness. While bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for this present life and also for the life to come. Godliness is a means of great gain. Godliness with contentment and providing you understand what that gain is. So the point he's making is that those teaching a different doctrine think that religion is profitable, and it is. It's extremely profitable, but only for those who are content with what they have. Now let's talk about contentment. What is contentment? So I want you to see here how godliness and contentment are inextricably linked. The godly will be content. Those that are content, you could arguably have true contentment, are godly, okay? The word Paul uses for contentment here uh, is the same word that the Stoics, Stoicism was a school of Greek philosophy. It's the same word that they use for this concept of this idea of contentment. And for the Stoics, contentment had to do with a self-sufficiency, a self-sufficiency of the individual that was independent of circumstances and events in their life. And... and in, in that school of thought, one needed to find contentment, especially when something bad happened or something tragic happened or there was a loss, 
One had to look within themselves to stir up an inner peace that was not contingent or dependent on an event or circumstance. When we went back and studied, and we're going to look at Philippians chapter 4 in a moment, but in our city groups, we talk about the difference between what happiness and contentment is. And we talked about happiness being a state that we are in that is predicated on us, our circumstances, right? If, if things are going well, we're happy. If things are not going well, then, you know, we're in the dumps, you know? And that differs from the kind of contentment that we look at in Philippians chapter 4 that we'll see in a moment and what Paul is talking about here, right? For the, for the Greek Stoics there, you can't control fate. So things are going to happen to you, and that means you need to figure out a way to find contentment in and of yourself apart from your circumstances. Now, here's the deal. Paul was not a Stoic, but he's using the word that would be understood in his time, okay? Because he's not advocating for a, a passive approach to life where things happen to you, and now I've got to look within to, to stir up happy thoughts. Think happy thoughts. Think positive thoughts. Think peaceful thoughts. Or, or like the New Age spiritists, what spiritists are saying, everything, every answer you need is within. Look within yourself. And look within yourself, you're not going to be like what you find there, but <laughs> that's not what he's advocating here, okay? Um, look what he writes here in Philippians uh, chapter 4, 11 and 12. He writes, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Whatever situation, okay? Whether he's saying here, my tummy is full. This is my paraphrase, not, not there. Whether my tummy is full, right? Or the fridge is empty and I'm hungry. In every circumstance, whether in times of plenty or in times of lack, whether I have a good roof over my head or whether I'm homeless, I have learned the secret of facing every situation. This is what Paul is telling the believers there, Philippi. I'm like, I, I've just, I've gone through times of plenty and times of lack. I've had everything to eat. I've had nothing to eat. I know what it is to live in abundance and extreme poverty. But I've learned the secret of facing every situation. Look at that. He says, I have learned it. So this is not something he knew intuitively, and it's something he learned, and every single one of us needs to learn in our own life. Because here's the difference in how the Christian finds contentment in contrast to what the Greek Stoics taught. But the Christian does not find contentment in self-sufficiency. The Christian does not look within to find and muster up contentment in the face of seemingly difficult circumstances. We don't go inward. Especially when times are tough. For the grounds of Christian contentment is not self-sufficiency, but Christ-sufficiency. It's not independence, but Christ-dependence. Because what does it declare in in Philippians 4.13? Everyone's favorite theme verse in life, but is often misunderstood. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Right? It goes great on a hat, goes great on a t-shirt, goes great on the little mug that you have. And you, I can do all things through Christ. And we chant that like some incantation, right, to achieve my dreams and goals in life, right? And this is how, but that's not the context of what Paul was writing here, right? 
What's he doing? He is grounding his contentment in his union with Christ. I can do all things, not all the things I want to do. He doesn't say that. Not all the things in my ambitions and dreams I can do all those things in Christ. That's not what he's saying. He's saying in every circumstance, in whatever circumstance, I'm finding myself in the good and in the bad, in the much and in the little. There is a source of strength I draw from that is not from myself. It doesn't come from within, and it certainly isn't rooted in my circumstances. It's in Christ. He strengthens me. In Him, there is an inexhaustible well of strength I draw from in every and any circumstance I face in life. So that, that, that's not a, a, a magic incantation I chant when you know, I want things to go super duper in my life. Ooh, I'm going to get that job promotion. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm going to close that business deal. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Oh, I'm going to ask that girl out and she's going to say, yes, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's not for that at all. Here's what Paul learned and what he knew to be true. The all-wise and sovereign God ordained everything in his life. Every one of those things he talks about was ordained by God. Not just the happy times, not just the good times, not just the times of abundance. You, you, you've read Paul's writing elsewhere where he gives his, the list of everything he's gone through. Were those happy times? Ooh, I was shipwrecked. Oh, I was beaten. I had rocks thrown at me. I've been imprisoned. Can I remind you where Paul is writing this letter to the church at Philippi from? He's left to rot in a jail cell. He is imprisoned. And he doesn't know the outcome of his imprisonment. He doesn't know if he's going to live or if he's going to die. Not at this point. Not at the writing of this letter. Can you think of a worse circumstance in your life to be in? How many of us would find contentment in that situation? Have everything stripped from you. Being chained to a Roman guard. But he's saying, I have found the secret of contentment. I found it. And the encouragement he's trying to bring these believers and, and, and to each and every one of us here today uh, is that even though you may be experiencing what you perceive to be a crushing defeat, with Christ, you can draw from this inexhaustible well of his strength so that you can continue to press on. And that's indeed what he says. I keep pressing on. He writes that in that same letter. I press on. This is not a passive resignation to his circumstances and happy thoughts and and start quoting the promises of God. No, he goes, no, there's a strength in Christ. This that has come to me has come from the good hand of God. And I might perceive this to be a bad situation and it may very well be, but in him and because of my union with Christ, I press on, I go on. This doesn't knock you down. Having Jesus means that we will have everything we need in every circumstance. Strength when we're weak. Joy in the throes of tragedy and hardship. Fulfillment when we've lost everything. Hope in the face of adversity. 
peace in the midst of the storm and spiritual triumph when life deals you a crushing blow. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. That's why Paul could say, I am content. I am satisfied. I am assured of what I have in Christ. This is why when he comes to this formula here that he gives us why it works. Godliness plus contentment equals great spiritual gain. And we know what godliness is. First of all, Christ is godliness, right? First Timothy 4, he tells us it's the mystery of godliness. And then we know that here that he is our sufficiency. So if we have Christ, we're content. We're truly rich, aren't we? We truly have everything. It's the secret key of contentment that flows from the godliness in Christ Jesus. If you have nothing, but you have Christ, you have everything. And if you have everything, but do not have Christ, you have nothing. You are a poor, wretched individual. Christ is our sufficiency. Christ is more than enough, brothers and sisters. No matter the situation, no matter the circumstance, the trial, the difficulty, the hardship, the tribulation, the challenge, He is more than enough. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? He is. I know in this room, there are many going through different, difficult things in their life. And it's hard to stay up. In our flesh, right, we, we, we ride the tide, right, of what's going on in our life. Right? So when things are good, you know, we have reason to be optimistic. When things are not good, we become pessimistic and depressed and stressed. But it's not the state that a believer should be walking in, in union with Christ Jesus. And I don't think, you know, we have this example in Paul. He's not just the foremost of sinners, you know, that is an example for believers, right? If God can save Paul, like we looked at, if God could save Paul, he can save anyone. But if, if Paul could go through the things that he went through and say, this is the key to contentment, then I've got to perk up here and listen to this because I need it for my own soul. I need it in those moments of discontent, and we all battle with that. We all go through those ebbs and flows in life. And discontentment steals so much from the believer. It hinders us in so many ways. Okay, Now, let's look at our attitude towards money and possessions because... It's an important aspect here, you know, answering this question, what is the proper attitude then that we should have concerning money and possessions, right? Because look what he writes here. He's already established that these false teachers are greedy for gain, using the ministry for gain. They're covetous. They're doing what they do to get rich. But that's not the case with the one who's placed their hope in Christ, that's, that's not the case with the one who's holding fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those don't need to crave anything. They don't need to pursue other material possessions and gains in their life. They're content because they have Christ. And the, whole, the formula holds true again because in verse 7 he writes, As a reminder to us, for we brought nothing into the world 
<clears throat> and we cannot take anything out of the world. That's a truism, isn't it? The bookends of our life, our birth and our death, are the reason we can have contentment in life no matter the circumstances. And this truth is brought home anytime you attend, have ever attended a funeral. You're there, and it's a reminder that you can't take anything with you. Because that corpse, that body of flesh, isn't dragging anything with them into the next life. And sometimes people ask, you know, the questions, especially if the person was wealthy. Oh, what did they leave behind? Right? What did they leave behind? You know, thinking about what did they leave behind for their loved ones? The answer is always the same, whether rich or poor. They left everything. (laughs) They left absolutely everything. Right? It makes no sense whatsoever for a true follower of Jesus Christ who has placed his hope in the gospel, who's looking to Christ for all sufficiency and strength to be in any way greedy for material gain. It is illogical. It is insane. And it's irrational. Yet here many of us find ourselves caught up in the same rat race of this world in pursuit of materialism and money and possessions. And we want it and we want more of it. We came into this world with nothing and you and I will exit this world exactly as each one of us has entered it. That perspective should influence our economic lifestyle. That perspective, that eternal perspective should influence our buying and spending habits. Job said it first. There's an individual who lost absolutely everything, didn't he? Well, except his nagging and mocking wife, which I'm sure he wished would have gone first, but she didn't. She was left there to wag her finger at him, right? But he lost everything. And what does he write? What does he say that's written for us in Job 121? Naked I came from my mother's womb, Naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Could we say that? Could we say that? I'll never forget uh, attending the funeral of a, a couple that Bets and I knew for many years. Part of the church we were at and, and they lost their daughter. I think she was 21 years old. To a, um, um, she fell and hit her head and developed complications and passed away. <clears throat> Alan Paula. And I'll never forget that memorial service because of the joy that they exuded in the midst of that horrific tragedy in their life. And how often they repeated the phrase, We have Christ, He is enough. If Christ, He is enough, blessed. Be the name of the Lord. The Lord gave and the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God, I don't want to live like that. I want to have that kind of contentment at all times in my life. Job understood what Paul understood and what you and I need to understand. Money, material possessions, and stuff are temporary. They are not the stuff of eternity. Yet we live like they are. 
Do we spend our energy, we spend all of our time in any way possible to have more of it. But we're not going to take it with us. Our life is but a brief journey between two naked moments. The moment of our birth and the moment when we're lying on that slab being dressed for a funeral. The teacher of Ecclesiastes also knew this. He wrote of the rich person who lost everything in a bad business venture and the reality that he is going to leave this world exactly as he came into it despite all the hard work he engaged in in his life. So what's in your bank account? What's in your investment portfolio? What you have in all of your earthly possessions, your real estate holdings, your collectibles? Everything you own is not the stuff of eternity, brothers and sisters. It is destined to perish. Is destined to perish. Just why Jesus commanded his disciples, hey, look, don't store up for yourself treasures here on earth. That's what everyone wants to do because they think that's where I'm going to find fulfillment and contentment. That's what's going to make me truly happy. I don't have it now, but if I get it, I'll have it. And he says, don't do that. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where it is incorruptible, where it cannot be stolen. But here on earth, it's going to rot and it's going to decay. My garage is full of things rotting. My storage shed is full of things that are rotting that I thought at one time, I need that. I got to have that. And I had that and I'm, I don't even look at it anymore. I don't even know what it is. Then your houses are full of stuff like that too. biblical perspective look he gives it to us again in verse 8 but if we have food and clothing with these we'll be content it's a profound statement every one of us here has more than food and clothing i know you do how'd you get here what are your homes filled with what kind of toys do you have we are rich beyond what we can even comprehend, even though we act like we're not. And certainly in comparison to these first century believers, right? We are materially rich far more than any of whoever read this letter in that first century could imagine. Man, if they could see us today, they'd be like, you have indoor plumbing? Like you got this porcelain thing? You do your business and you flush it and it's gone? You're rich. <laughs> And we are, and we are. I thank God I was born for such a time as this, right? (laughs) The biblical perspective of him writing here with food and clothing, with these will be content, is a reminder that true contentment is not found in having more stuff than we absolutely need. Food and clothing, it doesn't get more basic than that. That includes shelter. A Greek word for clothing there. Also encompass, it means covering, but so food, clothing, shelter, the absolute basic necessities of human life and existence for our survival. And adding to any of that doesn't bring true contentment. In fact, getting more stuff has nothing to do with godliness because it won't make you more content. And we know that's true because we always want more. And when we get more, We're still not satisfied. It's still 
not enough and we're not content again. When I get the job promotion, when I get the new car, when I own my own house, then I'll be content. So you get the promotion only to find out your new boss is a jerk, right? And it's not what you thought it would be. You get the new car and then you discover you bought a lemon. You buy the house only to realize all of the expenses and work that go into having a home and home ownership. And we're not content because stuff is not the substance of true contentment at all. We spend a lot of time in the pursuit of stuff. We get anxious about not having more stuff. I'm preaching to myself here. Listen to the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to read this in its entirety of 25 through 33. The sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink nor about your body, what you will put on. Look what he's talking about. Food and clothing there, right? The basics. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Those words are like a blanket smothering our anxieties. What's He reminding us of here? Do you not think that God knows what you have need of? Do you not know that He knows you need to eat? He knows you need the basic stuff of life. Why are you fretting and worrying over those things? But see, you and I are not fretting and worrying about the basic necessities of life. It's that whole list of wants we've added to our basic needs in life. Those are the things that you and I get very anxious about. But our Heavenly Father knows what we have need of. And He'll provide those things we have need of. If we have the right perspective and priorities. Right? A few notes on this portion here. About contentment. Paul's not advocating here for utter destitution. Like, hey, even if you don't have food and clothing, be happy and content. No, no. That's, that's a recipe for destitution, right? If you aren't eating and you have nothing to wear and you're walking around naked, that's destitution. No one can be content that way, right? He's not addressing a destitute person here. He's addressing believers here, right? Who, who, who don't have the riches of maybe the rich people he's going to address at the end of this chapter here. And he's also not saying that all the Christians should have is food and clothing. Hey, just 
that's really all any Christian should ever have. Food and clothing, but that you shall be content and no more. Okay? No, he's not establishing the maximum, right? Uh, the upper limits of a Christian's material possessions. No, what he's establishing is the minimum that a Christian should have in order to be content. And the minimum you and I should have in order to be content is food and clothing. If you have less than that, no, you're not going to be content. But food and clothing, with that, we should be content. Anything above that, guess what? We just get to enjoy that as good gifts from God. Right? We know he doesn't, he, he, he's not advocating for an ascetic lifestyle. He's rebuking those who are promoting asceticism as a virtue and as a means of getting godly, godliness. He's not saying do without all the things in life. No, he already has told us that God has given us all things for our enjoyment. And what he made is good, right? We just don't need more than the essentials in order to be truly content. That's what you and I have to wrestle with. Let's quickly go through this passage. I told you I was going to bank all that time that Eric saved me, saved up all these last two Sundays. Verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Okay? Now again, in just a few verses down, he's going to give instructions to the rich, but he's not addressing the rich here. He's addressing those who are not rich, but have this unhealthy desire to be materially rich. They are lovers of money. They are covetous and discontented. Right? Now, when we went through the series in Proverbs, we know the Proverbs, wisdom literature, has a lot to say about this pursuing of money and possessions and the destructive uh, tendencies that can have an individual and the dangers when you acquire money and possessions and end up having a lot of stuff and what that can do to a person. That Jesus warns us to be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions, he writes in Luke chapter 12. So Paul lists here now this downward trajectory of the covetous, those who are lovers of money, right? Those who desire to be rich. First off, he says they fall into temptation. They fall into temptation. Those who desire to be rich and are lovers of money fall into temptation. Why? Because if you want stuff, and you want more stuff, and you love money, oftentimes you're going to do anything at all to get to it. And some of the things that you're going to end up doing are not going to be godly things. Right? You're going to spend more than you make. You're going to rack up credit card debt. And some people even resort to doing dishonest things to get what they want. It breeds temptation in the heart of the covetous person. The one who desires to have more stuff. Greed has a way of morally compromising a person. Think about the marriages that have been ruined by a spouse who is greedy for more stuff and more money. So they'll work double shifts and as much overtime as possible. And they'll take on... You know, extra jobs so they can get the boat and the new car and the new thing and the bigger house and what suffers. The marriage, what suffers. The family, the kids, right? All in the pursuit of material gain, right? Relational relationships are abandoned. So he says they fall into a snare. 
Because greed is a trap. A snare of materialism and moral compromise. But the the slide continues, right? You don't just fall into temptation, right? He says that this, this downward trajectory leads them into many senseless and harmful desires. The more you want, right? The, the more you have, rather, the more you want. It's like an addiction. A drug addict, right, who needs that next fix, this, has this craving for drugs, right? In order to feed that addiction, what are they going to do? When they've exhausted their own money, they're going to resort to lying and cheating and manipulation and theft to get what they want. Leads them into many senseless and harmful desires. Breeds a whole host of them. And third, the downward trajectory ends in this final stage of plunging the covetous into ruin and destruction. The love of money, the desire for material things, this craving of possessions is damning. The sinful desire for gain will eventually lead to their utter loss. Isn't that what our Lord said? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world? To have every material possession and thing and yet forfeit their own soul. The trade-off is horrific. Now Paul enforces this this triple warning of their downward trajectory with the famous proverb that that is quoted many times, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now, it's typically misquoted, right? You hear people say, oh, money is the root of all evil. That's not what he's writing here, okay? The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Money is not the problem. The love of money is the problem. The sinful desire for more stuff and material possessions, that's the problem. Money's a tool. Money is a Money is is a tool we use to transact, right? To buy and sell and obtain things from the basic necessities of life to the things that we want over and above those things. But in and of itself, it's it's, it's morally neutral, okay? So it's loving money that's the problem. And it's not the root of all kinds of evil. It's a root, a root. And it's a root that sprouts off a whole host of evil things, One commentator said, greed and materialism is a breeding ground for thousands of other sins. Like what? Let me just give you a few. Avarice, selfishness, stinginess, fraud, cheating, envy, quarreling, lying, robbery. And you know, some people have even killed because of the love of money. The love of money is behind the drug epidemic. It is behind the porn industry. It is behind human trafficking. It is behind big pharma. It is behind the exploitation of the labor force and many other grievous evils. Now, Paul is only going to concentrate on two kinds of evils. Not all those things, but two specifically. First, he says, through this craving. What craving? The desire for material things. The love of money. Some have wandered away from the faith. Jesus told his disciples, you cannot serve God and mammon. You can't. Mammon is, is a term for deceitful riches and possessions and money. You can't serve God and money. You can't serve God and other stuff. They can't both be your Lord. It's one or the other. Now, by word, we may prof- profess Jesus to be Lord, but by lifestyle, our commitment is not to Christ, 
It's to mammon. And he says, what you're going to do is loving and serving the one and hating the other. You can't serve them both. Either Jesus is Lord or money and stuff is. And if your commitment is to the pursuit of money and stuff, because you've demonstrated by your love for it, you have departed from the faith. Secondly, he says they have pierced themselves with many pangs. This craving, this love of money is like getting pricked over and over again by a thorny bush. You ever done that? I got to pulling a vine a few weeks ago. It was irritating me. I was sorry by one of the tree lines next to our driveway. And I don't know what I was thinking, man. I started yanking on that thing, and that thing was full of little, little thorns on it there. So I didn't just end up with one prick. It was many of them over and over again as I pulled that until I let go of it. This is what happens with this unhealthy craving, this love of money, this, this sinful desire for more stuff. It just keeps, keeps plunging and piercing one with many pangs over and over again. Worry, stress, anxiety, depression, remorse. All of those thoughts about the moral compromises one has had to make to have more. The realization that money and possessions cannot truly satisfy. Pierces one over and over again with many personal miseries. How many have come to the end of their life having attained great material prosperity only to be the most miserable of individuals? Oh, they got a big house, but their kids hate them and are resentful. And they've been divorced a million times over. And at the end of their life, they really have no one. They're lonely. I've had to do a a few funerals in my life of some individuals that you could tell uh, were not happy campers coming to the end of their life. That was evidenced by the lack of people present to express their love and respect and condolences. The love of money is a self-destructive evil. I'm going to close with some quick practical applications and some questions to ask yourself here. Our constant challenge is this. We don't think we're rich, but we are. And and that challenge sadly comes because of the culture we find ourselves in, right? It's a culture of consumerism and materialism and greed and you just have to have more stuff, right? So, So we have to combat that. We have to combat that desire that creeps up in each and every one of us for more. We have to fight for contentment in the little and in the much, I haven't spent a lot of time talking about contentment when we have it all. Because a lot of times, that's the place where we become a little more self-sufficient because we think, wow, look what I've done. That's a caution, but that may be another message, all right? (laughs) We have to fight for contentment in the little and much. How do we do that? Well, the answer I've already given to you a number of times. It's Christ. He is our all-sufficiency. He is enough. Because ultimately, is he not our greatest treasure, brothers and sisters? He is our greatest treasure. He is all the riches you and I will ever need. This is why, Paul, right, with food, if we have food and clothing, we have Christ. We have everything. We have everything. He is the superior delight over every inferior pleasure this world has to offer. Certainly every inferior pleasure that any material possession has to offer. 
The stuff we get that we think we're going to derive enormous pleasure and delight from leaves us very unsatisfied. But Christ never will. When we realize that having Christ is great gain, it affects how we live in this world. What is Paul arguing for here in all of this? He's offering for the Christian to live a simplicity of lifestyle. Not like these false teachers who are using the religious enterprise here for great gain and and, and gaming the system to get more stuff. And certainly not like the people of the culture that they found themselves in, right? That time in first century Ephesus is no different than today. People want to get ahead. People want to have more things. They want to live in the lap of luxury. They want a life of comfort and ease. And he's saying, that's that's not the priority for the Christian. That's not the priority for, for someone who's placed their hope in Christ and his gospel. We should be content with the basic necessities of life. So ask yourself, are you? Are you content with just having the basic things? Are you living in discontentment right now because you don't have what you want? Are you tempted to believe that God owes you more than you have? If you were like being brutally honest, do you feel that God owes you a better standard of living than the one you're currently, presently enjoying? I think we've all been there. You might be there now. But we don't need more. We don't need more. We have Christ. Don't buy the lie that this world is selling. Don't buy the lie of every marketing agency out there trying to get you to buy their product or service, man, because that is in our face every day over and over again. Buy this, get this service, have this, and you will be successful, fit, healthy. Right, Be respected, be held in high esteem, gain the status that you desire. Be desirable for others. Have people turn their heads and look in your direction on and on and on. And, and, and man, let's not, you know, let's be honest here. We all fall into that stuff. We all go after that stuff because secretly there is a discontentment in our heart and in our life. And we can profess Christ is enough and we can say we're we, in Christ, you know, he's my all sufficiency. But practically in our life and functionally, that's not true. If you were to lose everything, God forbid through some catastrophic event, would you still be content? Would you still say, I've got Christ, I have everything. He's enough. God takes the closest thing from you. Could you say like Job, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. And blessed be the name of the Lord. Oh, to live with that eternal perspective. What would our church look like if we all lived simply and counterculturally, content truly with the basic necessities of life? And anything over above that, we enjoy it, but we don't need it. We're not mastered by it because we're truly content in Christ alone. But a body of believers that has godliness with contentment is not just going to live simply, but they're also going to live generously. 
It's, it's, it's the point Paul makes at the end of this chapter when he exhorts the rich among you. He says, here's just to the rich among you because there were the wealthy in that area. And, and so he has a warning for them. But what does he exhort them to do? He, he tells them to be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share. Now, again, I think some of us would sit here and go, oh, that's to the rich. And we read that and we go, oh, that's for the people who make more than a million dollars a year. That's for those, man, who just, wow, they got everything they want in life. No, no, I think we need to see ourselves in a lot of this. If we have more than food and clothing, I've been wrestling with this all week and seeing that because there's things I want. And I certainly, if you ask me, Dan, are you rich? I'd give you a standard answer, man. I'm rich in relationships, man. I have a great family, great church. You know, we all kind of super hyper-spiritualize that. No, I'm pretty rich in material possessions. Maybe not compared to someone else if we play the comparison game, but every one of us in here are rich beyond what we think. And we're still not content. And we don't give. We're not open with our life and with the resources that God has given us. And I think the reason that many Christians, because we all know the stats, right? It's only, a, now I praise God, we have a large, for, for a small church like ours, we have a large percentage of folks here who faithfully give. Our giving, it's called giving units in church parlance. Uh, we have a, a, a very healthy number of giving units in a church of our size, more than the national average. But we know Generally, it's only about 20% of, of average church attenders or frequent attenders that actually help uh, in the ministry of the church and the giving of the church. And I think a lot of that has to do with this discontentment. And, and I think it has a lot to do with fear of, of letting go of something because what if I can't get more stuff? What if I don't have money to pay the bill? Now, I'm not advocating be foolish with your finances at all. At all. But we hold back in giving of what God has placed in our hands and given us to steward because of, of a lack of trust that He is who Jesus said He is. The Heavenly Father who knows what we have need of and generously gives to us so that we can live open handed in our own life. I want to live like that in everything. In everything. If we're truly content when we have an increase of income, it isn't to increase our standard of living. But like a good prosperity teacher say, it's to increase your standard of giving. Right? <laughs> no, it's like, you know what? If God blesses me even more, that's wonderful. But it isn't for me to get more stuff. It's to be a blessing to others. And that's the exhortation Paul gives to the rich there in 1 Timothy 6.18. Be rich in good works and be generous and ready to share. How many of us want to live that way? That we have more than enough, so we are ready to share when a need presents itself. We're ready to help our local church do whatever it is that they're, they're engaging in and doing. Living simply and generously breaks us from the death trap of the love of money and the pursuit of stuff. And that's the eternal purpose. A world mired in materialism is not going to win over a materialistic world. And that's where the church has been especially the church here in the West, certainly the church here in our country, right? The, the, the American church formula is Christ plus stuff equals contentment. You know that's true. But that's heterodox. 
The gospel is Christ plus nothing equals true satisfaction and contentment. That is great gain. Jesus is all you need, brothers and sisters. He's enough. He's where we ground our contentment. He provides us with his all-sufficient strength. And if we have him, we have great gain.